What do you know about the Conservation Reserve Program? And how about your beef checkoff knowledge? This week, we're talking about both. Welcome to Around Farm Progress, a podcast that looks at agriculture issues across the country. I'm Willie Vocher, host and editorial director for Farm Progress. The Conservation Reserve Program has helped farmers take less productive land out of production while reducing the financial hit. But it's also helping farmers build back that land with pollinators and biomass crops that can improve soil health. Fran O'Leary recently featured a Wisconsin producer who is leveraging the program for some of his land, creating recreational areas and pollinator-friendly spaces in the area. She shares her insights on CRP and some of the features of the program she notes some farmers may not be aware of. The sign-up deadline for the program is April 7. If you're considering some of your ground for the program that you might think is eligible, you still have time. And if this isn't your year, consider what Fran shares for future plans. Well, Fran O'Leary, welcome to Around Farm Progress. It's good to talk to you again. Yeah, good. So um, one of the stories you did recently, cover story actually, recently caught my attention and um, your attention as well is you did a write-up on a farmer that's uh, kind of gone all in on CRP, Conservation Reserve Program. We want to talk about that, his that story, and then also maybe what you've learned about the program. And for farmers who might be listening to this, who've hemmed and hawed about it, um, what they might want to think about it, they're looking at applying. Not every it, it, There's some available every year. Some land comes out and some goes in. But what did you learn when you started digging in on uh, this the CRP program and what it might mean for farmers? Well, it seems like every time I do a story, there's something new to learn about CRP because it keeps evolving over the years. But the thing I learned most recently when I did this story was that you don't have to put a whole farm into CRP. I think I have always kind of thought you had to do everything or nothing. You don't even have to put a whole field into CRP. You can put an acre of this field or a couple acres of that field and five acres of another field that are marginal land into CRP. And that's something that is pretty new to me and to a lot of people, in fact. So it's becoming a trend because most people are kind of hesitant to do a whole farm and the CRP people are even advising that it's good to keep a balance of what you put into CRP. For example, they'll say on a farm, it's best to put no more than 50% of your farm acres into CRP and to either farm or rent out the rest of the land for, for agriculture. Well, that's makes the land we think sometimes that uh we think sometimes that uh yeah it should be the whole farm oh so if i've got a couple of wet spots in the field that might be fine for pollinators but not good for corn or soybeans i could put that in the program certainly and think how much you're saving by not putting inputs on that two three acres spot that produces at best a 50% of a crop and you never get a break-even yield out of it. If you're not spending the hundreds of dollars to put that crop in on those acres, then you're saving all that money. 
That makes sense. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about this, though, um, what we it's not a um, plant it and forget it kind no. of situation. If I've got CRP, there's a little maintenance involved, right? Right. They do need to mow it, especially when they're trying to get the new seating established. They um, put in the the seating of of flowers and grasses that they choose to put in. They can select what kind of seeds, what kind of flowers, wildflower seeds they want in there and what kind of grass seeds they want in there. And then it's seeded. And then they need to mow that each year for the first three years till the stand is fully established. And that's to control weeds. And once the flowers and the grass seeds become mature and and get going, they don't need to mow it every year. It's primarily just in the beginning to keep out the weeds and control the weeds and things like Canada thistle. Um, they don't want that. Right. Anything that classifies as a noxious weed in the county has right. to constantly be maintained. Even if you stop mowing, you need to scout and control the noxious weeds in your CRP right. ground, right? Right, they do. Okay. And so it's not it's not a one-time thing where you plant it and then forget it. You do need to maintain it. Yeah, that's that's pretty good. But it's also nice. It can be used for recreation. And uh, right. there's rising interest in pollinator ground if you've got a piece of ground that's kind of not so great maybe you can get a little decent money off of it and just plant it to flowers exactly and it beautifies your farm it also makes for great uh hunting land there's a lot and recreation land and it offers um just a variety of benefits including the fact that we are we have pollinators everywhere that are in need of these wildflowers and pollen 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 that they can get for um, bees and and everything that that needs it. We need pollination. It, it's uh it's a win win for everybody, not just the farmer and not just the landowner. Um, it's a win for the whole community and for agriculture. Yeah, you made the comment before we started talking here that uh, that groups like Pheasants Forever, um, they like the idea that maybe not all the ground, that some of the ground is still being cropped as farmland. Why would that be? It's It makes the land more valuable if you have no more than half of your farm put into CRP, then you can get more rent from CRP and it keeps the yield up and it there's a variety of reasons. It's also a good balance between nature and agriculture and it's another win-win situation yeah. for the farmer and landowner in the community. We basically don't want to be pollinating the entire eastern part of Wisconsin. We need to have some corn and soybeans out there, right? And some right. silage corn for sure. Oh, right. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, we I don't know. We still have a great cows. need for land. <laughs> yeah. 
That's right. That's right. It's just interesting. I mean, you what turned you on to doing this story? I was um, contacted by Irv Lashinsky, who's uh, involved with the Bonnellet County uh, Land Conservation Office. And over the last 35 years, we've done quite a few stories together. And he's always my main source for apprising me of what's new and different and unique. And he wants me to spread the word to other people about all these nuances that are out there. So I credit him with keeping me up on the latest of what's happening. And you came across a couple that they buy land and then they put part of it at least into CRP as that's their whole intent, right? Right. They're both veterinarians and he he's a farm veterinarian and she recently retired as a pet vet. And for the last 35 years, they've been buying farmland in the area where they live. And uh, they just recently in the last couple of years bought another parcel of land and they decided to put half of that into CRP and half of it they rent to a neighboring farmer. And the land that they put into the CRP, they also had six ponds put on. And that was cost sharing that they could get for doing that. It has part of um, the headlands for the Rock River running through their farm. So they decided to make part of it into um pollinating habitat as well as having um well they put in a filter strip or it's a buffer area so with a buffer those riparian those riparian areas are pretty valuable if they're the right width to capture or slow the progression of both phosphorus and nitrogen from the field to those waterways which is becoming a bigger and bigger concern so that's cool that they can get they make that all work too those filter strips and the whole ponds and everything was plotted out for them by an expert from pheasants forever so they didn't have to say well we kind of want this and we kind of want that they told them what they wanted and then this guy just mapped it all out for them and so you don't have to be an expert at all this stuff they have experts who will help you out yeah they they do the the terrain management train evaluation to decide where things should go and presence forever is good and they work very closely with nrcs this isn't like you're doing it in a vacuum because you can't do any of this stuff without input from nrcs correct and the land conservation office works with nrcs and they all work together it's really like a network they know Mm -hmm. each other they work together they all have their area of expertise and they all work as a, a committee to help the farmer come up with um, a plan and make it work for him. Now, we learned that your surprise on this was the partial field CRP ability, which is kind of cool. And I think a lot of people, some people know, some people don't, some people aren't sure. It does pay to talk to your local NRCS office, right, to get a better handle on what's going on with CRP? Oh, definitely, because they can put you in touch with, they can talk to you. They have their own experts who can answer your questions. And then if there's something that they're not as clear about or they know somebody will be better at answering the question, they will put you right in touch with them. The interesting thing I also learned in this is the the rent that is available for 
CRP land. It's comparable to the land rent that you can get for your land. So you're not, you're improving your land and you're making the habitat you want for your land and you're also getting paid to do it. I mean, it's a, it's a win, win, win. Yeah, it's a, it's a great program. If you can, if you can enroll again, remember with CRP, you can't enroll every acre every year things come in and out, but it makes sense to be in touch with the NRCS and Pheasants Forever to see what's available. So if anyone has questions, um, I would suggest that they contact their local land conservation office, NRCS office, FSA office, or speak to Pheasants Forever, and they can put you in touch with all the right people. Absolutely. And yes, let's keep that in mind. There is a deadline for the 2023 sign-up. Well, Fran O'Leary, it's been great talking to you about CRP and a topic that we don't always think about. And a great story that you did. And I'll put Thank a link you. to the story in the uh, in the write-up for this podcast, too, if people want to go check it out. Well, thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks to Fran O'Leary for her insights on the Conservation Reserve Program. And note, the sign-up deadline is April 7th, so you still have some time to apply. And USDA is aiming to reach the 27 million acre cap set for fiscal year 2023. Switching gears from the benefits of CRP to rising demand in the global beef market, yes, I know it's kind of a, and now for something completely different moment, we have a report from Betty Haynes with Prairie Farmer, who talked with Norman Voyles Jr. at the recent National Cattlemen's Beef Association annual convention. He's a former Cattlemen's Beef Board chair and Indiana native who discusses the latest from the beef checkoff. In their discussion, they look at rising demand for U.S. beef and checkoff programs focused on sustainability, nutrition, promotion, and safety. Oh, and they even talk about that television show Yellowstone and its potential impact for the beef industry. I'm Norman Boyles Jr. from Martinsville, Indiana, currently serving as Cattlemen's Beef Board for another 24 hours. Been at it, uh, this is my sixth year on the Beef Board, and have enjoyed every minute of it. It's been great. Uh, home operation is uh, with myself, my brother, and my son, and we row crop about uh, 2,000 acres. Uh, we run about 120 mama cows that are uh, crossbred, and then we'll feed out our calves plus neighbors, uh, about double that number. We had 80 acres that were um, homestead in 1828 by an ancestor, and we've got all but uh, it's eight acres of that still in the family that we still operate. So it's been a real family affair. I'm seventh generation. My son would be eight. His sons are nine. That's that's pretty impressive. Yeah. I think it's yeah. cool that I'm fifth generation, but that's yeah. even farther. Yeah. We're real happy about that. So, um, anyway, I served as Indiana's uh, Beef Cow Association president back in 2015. Uh, and then, as that term expired, an opening came <clears throat> for Indiana's seat on the Cattlemen's Beef Board, and I applied for it. was appointed by Secretary Vilsack uh, during the Obama administration was reappointed by Secretary Purdue during the Trump administration and, and just about to wind down. What do you wish folks knew about the checkoff? Um, that it is a wholly independent organization from any other organizations. All the money that's spent that our 101 members uh, 
make the decisions as to how that money is spent on what programs, what projects. All the contractors, we have uh, 12 different contractors that come in and actually get uh, projects for this past year approved. Uh, and they run the gamut from educating teachers to doing human nutrition research with beef. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, and then we do some education stuff for, for producers as far as the beef quality assurance program. Also help producers um, to be able to talk to the media and their neighbors with the uh, Masters of Beef Advocacy Program. This last year we had about $38.5 million that we were able to actually spend on those projects and it was uh, it was a tough cut but we had asked for like about 48 million so we cut about nearly 10 million dollars from the ask these different contractors so and they always bring in good projects and you just try to have to make the decision on which ones are the best and what parts of which ones are the best that you that we as a group feel like is going to help promote beef because that's our charge promoting beef. Can we talk about exports a bit? Oh, yeah. Yeah, let's yeah. do it. Okay. Um, we are just so excited with, with the exports and what's been going on there in the last three years. Um, exports have just been going up and up and up in volume and in in value. Of course, with inflation, that value, you, you know, you, you always are a little concerned, okay, is that all it is? Is it just value going up? But it's not. It is, in fact, volume going up. And the really great thing about that that you know make sure producers understand is that it's not the necessarily the, the ribeyes and the t-bones that are going overseas or outside the country it's beef lips that are bringing a dollar 30 pound it's tongue that's bringing you know, over two dollars a pound uh, in many cases here in the u.s that stuff would just be rendered yeah and you get three to eight cents for it. So, you know, we're really adding a lot of value to that beef animal, somewhere in the neighborhood of $450 per fed animal coming back to the industry. So what have you done to increase exports? Like, can you talk about some new export markets that you all have explored? Um, the USM, uh, U.S. Meat Export Federation is uh, our partner on there that just does fantastic work. They've got 17 offices around the world uh, where they are working in country with um, folks from that country that know uh, the culture, they know contacts in order to move beef product and uh, put it in the best position so that we can increase volume and value of those products within that country. Uh, Japan, uh, China, Hong Kong, Korea are our three largest. Uh, We also export uh, really large amount to both Canada and Mexico, uh, but we also put a lot of emphasis uh, in recent years in South Africa, okay. uh, in South America, uh, <clears throat> the Mediterranean, uh, and also into uh, the Caribbean. So uh, just uh, yeah, not the Mediterranean so much it, itself. I mean, certainly some's going there, but like Dubai, we've got an office now in Dubai and other places, you know, just as I said, we've got 17 offices around the world, including several places in the ASEAN region. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're able to move a lot of product and we found that consumers really want 
U.S. beef. So why do they want U.S. beef? Safety mm -hmm. is one thing. You know, they realize that U.S. beef is safe. We are a dependable partner in shipping stuff to them. If we say we're going to get them some product, we do. Uh, and also just a flavor of our product, even if it's some of these variety meats, it still has a different flavor, different texture that consumers desire. How did the COVID pandemic play into any of this? It was so interesting. Yeah. Um, we actually increased exports, both dollars and value, during COVID because people couldn't go out to eat to restaurants. So they had to learn how to cook at home. And when they had to cook at home, they started looking at the value of beef that they could actually bring in and make these really nice uh, meals that would rival, you know, what they'd be getting in a restaurant, do it cheaper than they could get in a restaurant and uh, really create an atmosphere and, and, you know, they're locked in. And so, you know, let's spend time with our family and, and learn how to, how to cook and, and make it a, a family affair. Sustainability has been a big word uh -huh. the past several years. Yep, yep. Uh, what are you doing to further that message? Certainly. Um, we're trying to make sure that folks give credit to the beef industry for the first part of how sustainable we really are. Uh, you know, when you look at the carbon cycle, uh, beef cattle are outstanding in recycling carbon carbon sequestration um, of taking carbon dioxide from the air, storing it in the ground, uh, plants grow, the animal eats it, and then can fertilize that ground again. You know, it's, it's a wonderful uh, cycle that uh, cattle actually improve environments. It's been shown that when grazing is done, as most ranchers do it, and with a plan, uh, and some of these plans have been in place for generations, uh, if they know they have to take care of the land in order that it can sustain them, not only that year, but in future years, because we're all weather dependent, all of agriculture is, and we realize that you know, even though this year might be good, next year may be awfully dry, and we've got to have some reserves there for our product or our, our, our herds. What are you doing to address uh, truck off misconceptions to producers? Sure. Um, the thing that we instituted about five years ago, it's called The Drive. Yes. And that is a newsletter that comes out quarterly. It's also an email that can come out, or comes out every month. And it explains to me, it's directed towards producers, tells them little snippets of what each of our contracting partners are doing yeah. uh, to promote beef. And then it, it will also highlight some of the producers that are uh, involved in our organization. Uh, Oftentimes, talk, okay, for instance, the, uh, some folks in Nebraska, you know, what, what are they doing on their operation? You know, just kind of giving it a hometown feel that these are the producers that are involved with the checkoff. We are not far removed from beef production. We are the producers, and we have an understanding of what's necessary to, to keep production going. And we honestly all feel like, um, you know, we're investing those dollars wisely to help them on beef. Any other, like, 2023, what's coming down the pipes that we need to have on our radar? Um, you know, I think one of the things you realize is that uh, we had such liquidation of the cow herd in the West. Yeah. 
that is going to be a challenge for the next three to four years as far as collections coming into the checkout programs. We may see a scaled back version of programs we're going to be able to do because of that. That's certainly going to be a challenge. Uh, it's going to be a challenge to try and make sure that we, in fact, are spending dollars wisely. For instance, you know, we may be doing some three or four human nutrition research projects last year, this year, maybe it's down to two, next year it may be only one, things like that. So, but I think the, the promotion aspect of it, uh, the feed that's watched for dinner, tagline, you know, always, always, always that's going to be uh, out there, out in front, so that people understand that beef, it is what's for dinner, and it's good for you. Uh, what about beef safety? Certainly, that's another thing that you know, we, we try to tell not only producers about with our beef quality assurance program, but we also are, are teaching folks, uh, the consumers, just showing them how truly safe the beef product is and follow it through from conception to consumption and how many safeguards are in place to make sure that, that those animals will meet consumers' needs for wholesome, nutritious, uh, valuable protein and be very, very safe for them to consume. Um, and from the environmental standpoint, you know, we do a good job of keeping the environment, keeping our waters clean, keeping the air clean, not, not having to invest lots and lots of infrastructure to build a uh, alternative beef, alternative protein patty like some other industries. What are you all doing to combat the alternative protein industry? As far as combating it, uh, I think I think from the research that we've seen, the best way to combat that is to tell the truth. And the truth is how many ingredients are in beef, how many ingredients are in other products, and the beef product um, much more simple and much better tasting. So, this is not on my script, but uh, what effect do you think Yellowstone will have on consumer demand for beef? It'll improve it some, I think. I think I think that the thing that it's going to do more, and this was Taylor Sheridan, I don't know if you were here for a session yesterday and saw him talk, but his comment, I think, relates just that um, what his show can do is give people a better feeling for the folks that raise beef how concerned they are with the environment, truly are with the environment, and and what actually makes sense in that environment in order to raise that that beef animal. Some of the challenges that we face from both local, state, and national uh, governments in in raising that product. So, what's next for you personally? Um, I have another year serving as uh, past chair that I'll do some traveling with the organization in, in an advisory role, but I'll be home more. My brother and my son are going to like that. Thank you for your time. Oh, thank you. I sure appreciate so nice it. nice to meet you. You too. Thanks to Betty Haynes with Prairie Farmer for her conversation with Mr. Voiles. It's great to hear the rest of the world is benefiting from what many of us already know, that U.S. beef is tasty. And thanks to Fran O'Leary for her insights on the Conservation Reserve Program. 
These are interesting topics, and if you don't want to miss what we're talking about here at Around Farm Progress, simply subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform. Apple, Spotify, Amazon, and more. And if you have a smart speaker, all you have to do is tell it to listen to Around Farm Progress, and you'll hear the latest episode. Farm Progress is the nation's leading agriculture information source with 17 state and regional brands as well as farm futures, beef, national hog farmer, and feedstuffs, and our events including the Farm Progress Show, Husker Harvest Days, the Farm Futures Summit, and the New York Farm Show. Join us next week as we continue our agriculture journey around the country. I'm Willie Vogt, Editorial Director at Farm Progress. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.